everyone, my name is Brianna Saint and I'm an attorney in Bills and Sumberg's litigation group. I'm excited to welcome you to a very timely discussion on the unprecedented changes transforming higher education, spread in large part by the COVID-19 pandemic, but also brought on by longer term structural changes. As part of the discussion, I have the pleasure of speaking with Phil Stein, the head of Bills and Sumberg's litigation group, AKA my boss, and about some of the most important trends and challenges facing this rapidly growing sector of the economy. Phil has written extensively about developments affecting colleges and universities, focusing on areas in which they may face the greatest legal exposure. Today, we'll start off with a general overview of the current state of higher education from a business and legal perspective, and then focus on two of the most salient issues that colleges and universities are now facing. The first being the, pro the proliferation of tuition refund cases brought on by the pandemic, and the second being the broader issue of data privacy and security, which is taking on an even greater urgency now because of the rise of the remote learning and steady increase in hacking attempts and ransom software crisis. Phil, thank you so much for joining me. The COVID-19 pandemic affected a multitude of economic industries, as well as the daily lives of several million people. What can you tell the viewers about how the pandemic affected higher education from both the business and legal standpoint? Well, it changed their entire uh, method of, of instruction, right? I mean, everything really changed from what was traditionally and almost exclusively in-person method of learning to much more hybrid kind of instruction and mostly online. Um, what flowed from that were a number of things that affected them legally. I think number one, um, you've already mentioned the fact that there, there was a real increase in these tuition refund class action cases. We'll talk a little bit more about those later. Kind of hand in hand with that, um, colleges and universities, especially those with big time sports programs, had to cancel a lot of major events. Not just sports, obviously, but, but all sorts of events on campus. And to some extent, they got hit with um, requests, demands, or even occasionally, I guess, some, some threatened lawsuits with respect to event cancellation refunds for that. Um, there were a, a whole new host of, of enhanced kind of privacy issues. Again, something we'll be talking about a little more later. But with remote learning and with, uh, with company employees, professors, you know, being um, in a remote environment, there were bigger struggles, bigger concerns with respect to maintaining appropriate data privacy and security. The fourth thing is that with a lot of these revenue shortfalls, um, colleges and universities really had to deal much more extensively than they had recently with, um, with revenue shortfalls and what flows from that. You know, some cutbacks to their budgets, some layoffs, and occasionally some legal issues associated with the layoffs, severance issues, and the like. And as of uh, just yesterday, June 21st, universities and colleges are really going to face a new issue, especially those that have big-time sports programs. In a really interesting and unanimous opinion by the United States Supreme Court, the court determined that um, previously existing NCAA caps on what student-athletes could earn in the way of education-related perks mm -hmm are no more. The, the, the cap was $5,000 in, in, uh, in value. And now what courts are, what the Supreme Court is saying, and it's the law of the land, is that um, those caps violate antitrust laws. And that may open the floodgates to later decisions, incremental decisions that um, make it even clearer than it's, it's becoming that student athletes are gonna have a real opportunity not just to earn enhanced education related perks, you know, things like um, study abroad programs or study abroad trips, um, postgraduate internships if they want them, other kinds of paid opportunities. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, it, it may be clearer, I was saying that um, these student athletes are going to be able to get endorsement deals. There's also on a parallel track in the legal system, um, 
a lot of state legislatures and, and courts saying, yeah, of course, um, student athletes should be able to profit from the use of their name, image, and likeness, mm -hmm. which means they could, they could get endorsement deals. So there's a new wrinkle here, and, and I think mm -hmm. for, uh, for universities, one of the things that they're going to have to deal with is you know, a new set of compliance issues. Um, as I said, for now, trying to make sure that whatever kinds of compensatory perks are being given to student athletes are tied to education in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, the universities aren't just giving them carte blanche to earn money whatever way they want to. Um, and I think they're going to have to start thinking about how best to prepare for um, you know, this other parallel strain that's going on that I mentioned of athletes increasingly being able in, in, in many, if not most states, as of July 1st, to profit off the, the use of their name, image, and likeness. And the final thing that universities, just like everybody else, have had to deal with, except maybe more extensively than a lot of other kinds of, of industries, um, is you know, at the early stage of the pandemic, thinking through and dealing with all sorts of testing uh, protocols that might be in place, um, maintaining appropriate social distancing protocols for anybody who, who was on campus, and then as we've moved through the pandemic into more of a vaccination phase, you know, colleges and universities, again, like a lot, of other, of, uh, a lot of other institutions, are having to think through issues associated with whether vaccines, uh, vaccinations can be mandated for people to be on campus, for students to return to campus in the fall. Um, in short, I guess that's a long way of saying they've, <laughs> they've had to deal with a whole lot of issues, and it's been a difficult time for colleges and universities, even though I think most of them have, have come through it pretty well. And so earlier we spoke a little bit about the class action tuition refunds. So what are some of the common legal arguments that you're seeing presented on each side of those uh, class action lawsuits? Well, I think the first thing to mention is that the universities have generally been successful in uh, fending off these kinds of claims. What has been argued in, um, in these class actions or, or you know, threatened class actions is that what the universities did in, um, in recruiting students was to promise them, the students say, unparalleled access, mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, uh, in some cases, to great professors, great uh, facilities, classrooms, you know, labs, libraries, the whole nine yards. And beyond that, you know, on-campus um, facilities like stadiums, arenas, fields, all sorts of extracurricular activities and programs. And they're saying, you know, we, we don't have that now, yet you're still charging or trying to charge us, you know, essentially the same tuition. And is that really fair? What the universities have said, again, mostly successfully in defense against those claims is, number one, you know, in our promotional materials telling you about these resources and facilities that we have, which, by the way, we really do have. We weren't mm -hmm. misrepresenting them. We weren't promising you, and certainly not in any kind of binding contractual way, that no matter what happened, you would always have in-person access to those things as opposed to online access to classes and, and some of the online resources that a company has, you know, library um, resources and, and the like. And we are making those things available to you online. And to the extent that, uh, even to the extent that one could say there, there had been some sort of contract formed, which they're denying and which courts are agreeing, um, you know, is not the case. They're also pointing out, and I think in a very commonsensical way, that what, what do you expect us to do when governors and top public health officials in our states are saying you can't be open? Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, we want to make sure that we don't have college students aggregating and, and perhaps creating these uh, super spreader type um, phenomena that, that everyone's trying to avoid. So those kinds of arguments have tended to be, as I said, very successful in court. 
Um, just this week, uh, a case brought against Harvard was dismissed by a federal court in Massachusetts, and that really has been the trend so far. Okay. So I understand it, it makes sense. There's no contractual binding, you know, promise that you are guaranteed no matter what to have access to these facilities. But I would think also students might argue, okay, well, there are certain things that you are saving on. For example, if we're no longer using these facilities, the resources it takes to run them, the, re the you know, to have staff come and clean, those are no longer resources that you're ex expanding on. So what is the response in those kind of arguments that we're seeing? Though most of these cases have been dismissed, and therefore it's not like a whole lot of factual arguments are being made yet, I think the general response by universities is actually, you know, number one, we have these revenue shortfalls. Um, number two, we, we do actually have some increased costs as we've, as we've tried to adapt quickly uh -huh. um, to a, a rapidly changing environment, and we've tried to ramp up um, and enhance our online teaching capabilities We've you know, done the things that we felt we needed to do to um, really enhance the cleaning that's going on and um, you know, take the, the, the health measures and safety measures to ensure that, that people who are on campus, who have to be on campus for one reason or another, are safe. So I, in short, I think the, the response really is you know, we're not saving as much money <laughs> as, as you might thinks. think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, another thing I also wanted to speak about is you spoke about earlier data privacy and this idea that now with more people being, you know, at home and remote, that we, we see an increase in uh, potentials of dangers of hacking, for example. So what can you tell us a little bit about that that's going on within the higher education system? Well, I think universities are really beset with a whole range of, of privacy issues that they need to be focused on, privacy and security issues, really. Um, one has to do just with their, their kind of general uh, compliance framework. And it's, it's not something that's just um, staying in place. It, it's something that is rapidly evolving in response to the facts um, on the ground, so to speak, as, as, as um, circumstances have changed and as health conditions have changed over the last year or so. so companies are having to really think through um, what their privacy policies should be mm -hmm. um, in this rapidly changing kind of environment and you know to what extent they should change as we get back to more of the the former normal right. um, beyond that you know again to the extent you've got a more remote workforce and more um, and more students attending classes remotely and accessing um, company I'm sorry university resources remotely there are just new data security concerns because a, a university network might be much more secure than a, than a professor or a student's right. home network, right? And could more easily be compromised. That is the, uh, the professor or student's network. Um, you know, to the extent that there is sensitive research going on, graduate level research or uh -huh. whatever is going on, you have new concerns about keeping that safe and secure to the extent professors and students or whomever are, are communicating uh, remotely about you know very sensitive things they might be working on, very innovative things they might be doing. Um, so so you know almost like trade secret type issues right. come into play, and you know proprietary research needs to be um, needs to be protected. You've also got the whole new set of issues or or enhanced set of issues um, on on some things that we've always had to deal with or universities have, have always had to focus on related to the privacy of health information, the right. privacy of other kinds of personal student data. Um, and, you know, arguably hackers have even more time on their hands right. now to, to try to, uh, to try to access this kind of, of personal private data and make, 
inappropriate uses of it. So, you know, there, there's a lot more that could be said, but those are just some of the big categories of things that universities are having to focus on, um, you know, in this new environment. And that actually brings me to another point. I would have to assume liability is a huge issue, too. I mean, you think about, for example, colleges that might have had written exams, and then all of a sudden they're having to outsource, like, for example, to other companies to provide platforms for students to take their exams online. What issues do you see occurring or that you might have seen occur in terms of, for example, a student gets hacked on because they're on a third-party exam software that's technically not you know, under the school's umbrella but was hired by the school? Yeah, you know, in this respect, I think universities are facing what a lot of our private business clients have been dealing with for a long time, which is, you know, you um, as a private business or as a university can be doing just a, you know, an A-plus job mm -hmm. of, of uh, maintaining robust security systems and doing everything you can to, uh, to prevent against hacking and ransomware attempts and things like that. But to the extent that, as you said, something is outsourced to a third party, and the third party doesn't have quite as robust systems or, or has you know, been negligent in some respect, you're absolutely right. A university, again, like our private business clients, can conceivably face at least some threatened claim of liability to the extent that somebody else with, with whom they've been working has kind of dropped the ball with respect to maintaining um, appropriate security. So yeah, that too is just a, a, another enhanced concern for universities in this time period. Okay, great. Phil, thank you so very much for this eye-opening discussion. Colleges and universities are contending with some complicated issues, and it's been a great moment to have an experienced practitioner like you to help us understand the challenges that they face. It'll be interesting to see how higher education will continue to adapt to them. To our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to bringing you additional informative and timely podcasts on important issues to you, which can be found on the Bills and Sundberg Lawcast at bills.com.